well with no way of getting up or down. It was a very unromantic position, but I didn't think about it at the time. You don't think much about romance when you have just escaped from a watery grave. I said a grateful prayer at once, and then I gave all my attention to holding on tight, for I knew I should probably have to depend on human aid to get back to dry land. The flat drifted under the bridge and then promptly sank in midstream. Ruby, Jane, and Diana, already awaiting it on the lower headland, saw it disappear before their very eyes and had no doubt but that Anne had gone down with it. For the moment they stood still, white as sheets, frozen with a horror at the tragedy. Then, shrieking at the top of their voices, they started on a frantic run up through the woods, never pausing as they crossed the main road to glance the way of the bridge. Anne, clinging desperately to her precarious foothold, saw their flying forms and heard their shrieks. Help would soon come, but meanwhile her position was a very uncomfortable one. The minutes passed by, each seeming like an hour to the unfortunate lily maid. Why didn't somebody come? Where had the girls gone? Suppose they had fainted, one and all. Suppose nobody ever came. Suppose she grew so tired and cramped that she could hold on no longer. Anne looked at the wicked green depths below her, wavering with long, oily shadows, and shivered. Her imagination began to suggest all manner of gruesome possibilities to her. Then, just as she thought she could really not endure the ache in her arms and wrists another moment, Gilbert Blythe came rowing under the bridge in Harmon Andrews' dory. Gilbert glanced up, and much to his amazement, beheld a little white scornful face looking down on him with big frightened but also scornful gray eyes. "'Anne Shirley, how on earth did you get up there?' he exclaimed. Without waiting for an answer, he pulled close to the pile and extended his hand. There was no help for it. Anne, clinging to Gilbert Blythe's hand, scrambled down into the dory, where she sat, drabbled and furious, in the stern with her arms full of draping shawl and wet crepe. It was certainly extremely difficult to be dignified under the circumstances. "'What has happened, Anne?' asked Gilbert, taking up his oars. "'We were playing Elaine,' explained Anne frigidly, without even looking at her rescuer. "'And I had to drift down to Camelot and the barge—I mean the flat. "'The flat began to leak, and I climbed onto the pile. "'The girls went for help. "'Would you be kind enough to row me to the landing?' Gilbert obligingly rowed to the landing, and Anne, disdaining assistance, sprang nimbly on the shore. "'I'm very much obliged to you,' she said haughtily as she turned away. But Gilbert had also sprung from the boat, and now laid a detaining hand on her arm. "'Anne,' he said hurriedly, "'look here. Can't we be good friends? I'm awfully sorry I made fun of your hair that time. I didn't mean to vex you, and I only meant it for a joke. Besides, it's so long ago. I think your hair is awful pretty now. Honest, I do. Let's be friends.' For a moment Anne hesitated. She had an odd, newly awakened consciousness, under all her outraged dignity, that the half-shy, half-eager expression in Gilbert's hazel eyes was something that was very good to see. Her heart gave a quick, queer little beat. But the bitterness of her old grievance promptly stiffened up her wavering determination. That scene of two years before flashed back into her recollection as vividly as if it had taken place yesterday. Gilbert had called her carrots, and had brought about her disgrace before the whole school. Her resentment, which to other and older people might be as laughable as its cause, 
was in no whit allayed and softened by time seemingly. She hated Gilbert Blythe. She would never forgive him. No, she said coldly. I shall never be friends with you, Gilbert Blythe, and I don't want to be. All right, Gilbert sprang into his skiff with angry color in his cheeks. I'll never ask you to be friends again, Anne Shirley, and I don't care either. He pulled away with swift, defiant strokes, and Anne went up to the steep, ferny little path under the maples. She held her head very high, but she was conscious of an odd feeling of regret. She almost wished she had answered Gilbert differently. Of course, he had insulted her terribly, but still. Altogether, Anne rather thought it would be quite a relief to sit down and have a good cry. She was really quite unstrung, for the reaction from her fright and cramped clinging was making itself felt. Halfway up the path, she met Jane and Diana rushing back to the pond, and the state narrowly removed from the positive friendly. They had found nobody at Orchard Slope, both Mr. and Mrs. Barry being away. Here Ruby Gillis had succumbed to hysterics, and was left to recover from them as best she might, while Jane and Diana flew through the haunted wood and across the brook to Green Gables. There they had found nobody either, for Marilla had gone back to Carmody, and Matthew was making hay in the back field. "'Oh, Anne!' gasped Diana, fairly falling on the former's neck and weeping with relief and delight. "'Oh, Anne, we thought you were drowned, and we felt like murderers, because we had made you, made you be Elaine, and Ruby's in hysterics. Oh, Anne, how did you escape?' "'I climbed up on one of the piles,' explained Anne wearily, "'and Gilbert Blythe came along in Andrew's dory and brought me to land. "'Oh, Anne, how splendid of him! Why, it's so romantic,' said Jane, "'finding breath enough for this utterance at last. "'Of course you'll speak to him after this.' "'Of course I won't,' flashed Anne, "'with a momentary return of her old spirit. "'And I don't want to ever hear the word romantic again, Jane Andrews. "'I'm awfully sorry you were so frightened, girls. "'It is all my fault. "'I feel, I'm sure, I was born under an unlucky star. "'Everything I do gets me or my dearest friends into a scrape. "'We've gone and lost your father's flat, Diana.' "'and I have a presentiment that will not be allowed to row on the pond any more.' "'Anne's presentiment proved more trustworthy than presentiments are apt to do. "'Great was the consternation in the Barry and Cuthbert households "'when the events of the afternoon became known. "'Will you ever have any sense, Anne?' groaned Marilla. "'Oh, yes, I think I will, Marilla,' returned Anne optimistically. "'A good cry indulged in the grateful solitude of the East Gable,' had soothed her nerves and restored her to her wonted cheerfulness. I think my prospects of becoming sensible are brighter than ever now. I don't say how, said Marilla. Well, explained Anne, I've learned a new and valuable lesson today. Ever since I came to Green Gables, I've been making mistakes, and each mistake has helped to cure me of some great shortcoming. The affair of the amethyst brooch cured me of meddling with things that didn't belong to me. The haunted wood mistake cured me of letting my imagination run away with me. The liniment mistake cured me of carelessness in cooking. Dyeing my hair cured me of vanity. I never think about my hair and nose now, at least very seldom. And today's mistake is going to cure me of being too romantic. 
I have come to the conclusion that it is no use trying to be romantic in Avonlea. It was probably easy enough in towered Camelot of hundreds of years ago, but romance is not appreciated now. I feel quite sure that you will soon see a great improvement in me in this respect, Marilla. I surely hope so, said Marilla skeptically. But Matthew, who had been seated mutely in the corner, laid a hand on Anne's shoulder when Marilla had gone out. Don't give up all your romance, Anne, he whispered shyly. A little of it is a good thing. Not too much, of course. But keep a little of it, Anne. Keep a little of it. End of chapter 28 Recorded by Susan Hooks, Tokyo, Japan